0: Well, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, We are now up to chapter 14, but just let me reiterate uh, how we left off last time. Uh, In chapter 13, we see that there are all kinds of things that can make a person unclean. Uh, We looked specifically at, remember that Hebrew word, Zalrana, a serious skin disease. Uh, And um, that was bad. But not only that, could that make you unclean? But the house you lived in could make you unclean. The clothes you wore could get this same Zalrigna. Everything around you all had the potential to make you unclean. Your average Israelite would wonder, no doubt, when is it going to hit me? When am, I to, when am I going to be unclean? In chapter 15, we see it's not just external, but it's, um, it has to do with just normal functions of life can make you unclean. Everything from birth to death can make you unclean. You're surrounded with it. And so we ask the question, what was the intent of all these laws concerning cleanness and uncleanness. And once again, I think this is meant to uh, govern the attitude of Israelites who would soon conquer Canaan and dispossess a very advanced culture, a culture that God wanted his people to have no part in. Now consider what kind of a culture do we live in? Okay, not long ago, I watched a football game. You now, I like to watch football. I like baseball better, but I'll put up with football. The one thing I can't stand is basketball. Don't ask me. I, I think it's because I don't understand anything that's going on in basketball. It just looks like a bunch of guys running up and down the court and shooting the ball at that, at that hoop. Uh, surely, I'm, you know I would appreciate it more if I, if I knew how it worked. Same with hockey. How many of you like hockey? Well, I'll pray for you. I mean, you can tell me later on what the strategy is in hockey. I have no idea. okay? But anyway, so I was watching this game, and fairly often, the camera would pan, up to one of the fancy-dancy boxes up there where Tyler Swift was watching the, foot, the football game. Taylor. I said Tyler, didn't I? I mean, Taylor Swift. See, can't, can't even get her name right. Uh, <clears throat> have any of you ever watched a Taylor Swift m- music video? Well, one day I did. I thought I got to be culturally up to up to snuff here on this on this phenomenon. Uh, here's a girl; her net worth is 1.1 billion dollars, and apparently she's the hottest thing since a pocket on a shirt. And so I, I need to know what what is everybody so excited about? All right, so the music video starts, and her boyfriend has jilted her, and so. The boyfriend, I guess, comes for another visit, and and she takes a sledgehammer. I certainly hope this was not a true original AC Cobra 427 cubic inch engine worth, fill in the blank, how many millions of dollars. It was probably a reproduction of that car. But there it was, sitting in the driveway, that was the boyfriend's car, and she commenced to taking a sledgehammer and smashing the living daylights out of the thing. I thought, oh, terrific. This is teaching all the young ladies who who watch this garbage how they ought to react to a boyfriend who did them dirty. Or I guess that was supposition of it. And I thought. Why is everybody making such a big deal about the Swifties? I mean, to some people, I mean, devotion to this woman is just like life and death. The the most wonderful thing you can be in life is a Swiftie. And I look at that and I think, you know, I just can't identify (laughs) with that kind of thing. I'm sorry. You say, well, Yeagley, you're born in 1952 and you're just out of it. You know, for a while growing up, I was really into cultural music, translated pop. I was a member of a rock band in our high school called The Quest. I played rhythm guitar and vocals. So it's not like I was Never associated with with pop music, with rock. I was, and then I got saved. <laughs> no, I, actually, it was I was actually saved. Initially, when I was into this this scene, but I went and listened. I didn't grow up in a fundamentalist home. My my parents didn't really like pop music. They were more classically oriented. Uh, I can remember the first time the Beatles performed on the Ed Sullivan show. And all the girls were screaming and fading with excitement and my my dad looks at them and says, look at those long-haired creeps. And now you look at the Beatles and you say, long hair and kind of short hair. The Beatles when they performed, at least back in those days, wore suits and ties. And they, and they sang songs like, Michel, my belle, sont les mots qui vont très bien ensemble. You know, did you, and, and you think, how does that compare with one of the you know, grunge bands that are out there or, or the hard rock bands? Uh, but anyway, we, we live in an increasingly hostile culture to our christian values increasing every day and there are many people in this country that hate us because we are countercultural have you accepted that you're going to you're going to have to deal with the fact how differently we think how differently we live how differently We just come to every question of life from the standpoint of how should I evaluate this? How should I be discerning? Okay, take the biblical principles I know and apply them to life. That's what God wanted to teach his people through these laws of cleanness and uncleanness. You've got to deal with a fallen culture where you're going. And so you need to get very practiced at having a scriptural view of how you do life. God's people would need great discernment in rejecting the lifestyle, prosperity, and moral wickedness they were about to encounter. They couldn't be ambivalent about this because God knew that the future History and destiny of his people was determined by how they would react to Canaanite wickedness. Would they be his agents for the destruction of this kind of thing? Now, look, God hasn't called us to be, you know, to take our guns and go shoot unsaved people. That's ridiculous. Uh, We don't live in a theocracy and our condition, our, our, our purpose in life is not to be God's agents of of destruction of those around us. That's crazy. Uh, Today is the acceptable day. Uh, Today is the day of salvation. That's what we preach. But for God's people at this time in human history, when they were about to take over the promised land that God was giving them, God knew they were to be instruments of his judgment on this wickedness that had been brewing for 600 or more years as God put up with it. And so this translates for us, we have to be careful that we make discerning choices about what we will participate in, what we will suggest to others to participate in, uh, we have to be careful that we check our, our uh, own value system, check it with the scriptures, because we also live in a very materialistic society, extremely materialistic. And that can't be our, uh, as the French would say, our raison d'être, our reason for being is not to accumulate more stuff. Linda and I will look at each other, you know, once in a while. I'll look at my closet, for instance. And I think to myself, after I'm with the Lord, what's going to happen to all these suit coats, sport coats, ties? I mean, I've got ties. I've already given away to Miracle Hill. I think I've given away dozens of ties of just... Everywhere, ties and closet, I've got so many I don't know how to wear them all, especially now that I only get dressed up a day a week. But uh, what's going to happen to all that stuff? Look around your house. Where? What's your prized possession? Well, it's going to be somebody else's someday, and for those in my age group, it might be transfer ownership sooner than we'd like to think, but there's not anybody sitting here that's going to own anything in a hundred years. It's all going to go away. Your house you live in, the car you drive, all the things you own, it's going all away. Somebody else will own it. Somebody else will get rid of it. Your car's going to end up in a junk heap somewhere. No, no, not my car, please. No, not the junk heap. Yeah, it will. So we must continually watch how we think about our our lives. <clears throat> Thankfully, there was good news in chapter 14. Okay, good news for those who had been, de- been declared clean by a priest. All right, so imagine... You had one of these spots on your skin. Maybe I suggested maybe it was something like psoriasis. And it's, after time, looking better. Uh, the priests were not physicians. They were simply observers of what would and what would not make you clean or unclean. So let's say you've been banished. You You've got a skin condition that makes it so that you're You're uh, living apart from your family, your friends, living apart from the ability to worship God at the tabernacle. That would be kind of a miserable existence. And you would be saying to yourself, how long does this continue? How long do I have to put put up with this? Well, there's always hope that that condition would improve. And if it did... What would you do? Well, you would basically go through a, a series of steps that would restore you to the covenant community of worship, a people who worship the true God of heaven. Let's take a look at chapter 14, verses 1 and th- through 3. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This shall be the law of the person with leprosy. That's our word, Zalragnah. On the day of his cleansing, he shall be brought to the priest and the priest shall go out to a place outside the camp. In other words, where this person is living. and The priest shall look and if the leprous infection has been healed in the person with leprosy, then the priest shall give order to undertake a, a ceremony that's going to result in this person, the first step of his person, this person being being readmitted to the uh, believer's assembly. All right, God specified a ritual ceremony for the person who was not any longer manifesting a disease and that he had to fulfill this. I need to rewrite that sentence. It's kind of not to not structured very well. It was a prelude to what happened on the Day of Atonement. See, the, this chapter is setting up uh, the Day of Atonement where uh, all these diseases like uncleanness and and all, we're going to find out there's many other things that uh, people needed cleansing from. But uh, basically, this is... Uh, this is a ritual that this, this person with uncleanness is going to go through that shows he's very concerned that he take every single step just as the Lord specified it for restoration to fellowship with God's people and restoration to worship of the Lord. Okay, So here is the ceremony. Seems a little bit strange to us. But basically, then the priest, First, second part of, or no, the beginning of verse 4, then the priest shall give orders to take two live, clean birds. They couldn't be unclean. And uh, some cedar wood. Have you ever ever cut into cedar wood? Uh, It's red on the inside, and so that red wood (coughs) is used a scarlet string and hyssop. Hyssop was used by the priests in uh, the tabernacle worship system to sprinkle blood on items in the tabernacle or persons associated with the priesthood sprinkle on them to make them clean or to atone for their sin. All right, so what would they do with the red wood and the scarlet red string and the hyssop. Well, uh, the priest, verse 5, shall also give orders to slaughter one of the two birds that they took uh, in an earthenware vessel over running water. As for the live bird, he shall take it together with the cedar wood and the scarlet string and the hyssop, and shall dip them in the live uh, and, and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was slaughtered over running water. He shall then sprinkle seven times the one who is to be cleansed from the leprosy, and shall pronounce him clean, and shall let the live bird go free over the open field. All right, so that's, that's picturesque of what's coming in the Day of Atonement when you take two goats. One of the goats is a goat for Nazazael in Hebrew. Uh, we call that the scapegoat, usually in English. And he's to, been, he's to be killed. And then the other goat, the live one, is to be let free and to go out into the wilderness. Picture of bearing the sins of God's people uh, a distance away from from them. And that's what is a kind of smaller picture with two birds instead of two goats of what's going to come during Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement in chapter 16. Once cleansed, the person would then offer sacrifices at the tabernacle. Alright, so Verses 10 through 20 detail the same kind of sacrifices we looked at in chapters 1 through 7 of Leviticus. All of these uh, aspects of, of uh, the sin offering, the guilt offering, fellowship offering, peace offerings, all of this was to show God now accepts this person who was once unclean, back into fellowship. In a way, I think this pictures what uh, believers are commanded to do in uh, the book of 1 John. We are commanded to confess our sins. And God is faithful and just to forgive us the sins and to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Never ceases to amaze me as I sit and think to New Testament verses that we all know well about how often these verses are oriented to this Old Testament idea of cleansing. And so the believer who has sinned does not to be, cannot be saved over and over again, but We confess our sin. He cleanses us, not just from the sins we know about, but from all sin. Look at the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that he has instituted for us that we must not take for granted. We'll say more about this in a minute. All right, there were also stipulations about how a house could be cleansed from whatever problem it had, mold or mildew, or whatever Zalragna meant in relation to a house. Uh, there's an interesting statement I want you to see, though, in relationship to the cleansing of the house. Look, if you would please, with me to chapter 14, verse 33. All right, come down here to the cleansing of the house. The Lord further spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When you enter the land of Canaan, see the future orientation of this concept? When, when you get into that place, with all the wickedness of the Canaanites all around you, this is what you need to particularly Uh, keep in mind and I put a spot of leprosy on a house in the land of your possession then the one who owns the house shall come and tell the priest saying something like a spot of leprosy has become visible uh, to me in the house now what do you notice about verse 4 where does the spot of leprosy originate Anyone? God. God God puts it in the house. Now, let's say that... By the way, I, I searched all the commentaries in my possession. I couldn't find anybody who even mentioned the fact that God is the one who brought this mark of leprosy on the house. Could it be that this verse also covers what other types of uncleanness? Well, on the skin or in the clothing. Could it be that this is God's sovereign choice of who gets this stuff and who doesn't? I don't know. But it's quite clear that at least in relationship to the leprosy of the house that this is what God has done. Please notice the divine agency of that statement. It's also possible that God gave a person a serious skin disease or put that uh, mark in the garment. We just don't know. But it's a possibility that he's been sovereign over all of this. And you might say, well, why would he do that to someone? Why pick out, you know, Joe Doe here and not, uh, you know, some other guy over there? Why would the Lord do that? He had a purpose in such a sovereign action. Can anyone think of what God's purpose might be in this? Why might it be God's sovereign plan and will for one person to experience, say, a spot on his skin that makes it so that he's separated from all Israel until such time as the priest declares him to be clean? What was his purpose in that? Well, good question. Let's go back. Perhaps God purpose to show his people how dependent they really were when it came to healing from disease. When it came to the aspect of how one person in our day can get a dreaded disease and some other person never been sick a day in his life. Think of Job, for instance. Now, Linda and I like to talk about Job because she's reading, has reread, I should say, a book by a friend of mine. The book is written by Leighton Talbert, and it's called Beyond Suffering. How many of you have read that book? Okay, good, good, very good. Uh, and here now, it, there comes a day when all the sons of God present themselves before the Lord. And the Lord says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there's no one like him in the whole world? One who turns away from evil and cleaves to good. He is perfect and he is he is righteous. That is God's omniscient evaluation of Job. That's amazing. The Lord knows everything about us, yet he could say of Job, this guy is is, uh, perfect and upright. And then that's a direct challenge apparently to Satan. And what does Satan say? Well, of course he is. The way you treat him and the way you've blessed his life with all kinds of stuff, of course he worships you. Of course he's careful about how he walks with you. But if I were to take away everything he has, then he would curse you to your face. Now, what would, happen, what would have happened if the Lord had not issued that challenge to Satan? What if he hadn't mentioned Job at all? What do you think, Nelson? Would Job have ever experienced disaster? Probably not. Satan would have gone after somebody else. Yeah, probably not. You know, there's some a lot of other people in the world he could have afflicted. Uh, but when the Lord issued the challenge, that resulted then in Satan just ruining his whole life. First, by taking away everything he had except his wife, which he could have done without. We later find out that, you know, curse God and die She is her advice to her husband. Uh, but anyway, uh, he left her. And uh, then, if that's not enough, Satan goes back, to the Lord and he says well okay you know he responded all right when I took away everything he had but skin for skin all a man has he'll give for his life his his health let me take his health away and so the Lord says okay just one rule don't kill him you can make him as miserable as you want just don't kill him and you look at that why? That, was God's, that was God's sovereign determination. That was God's loving determination. That was God's omniscient determination. Why Job? The man was living a life of impeccable behavior and even thought. At one point he says to himself, you know, my children might have sinned by cursing God in their heart. So I've got to do sacrifice for them. He's all the time thinking about how he should live. And then he's making sure he covers his, anybody who's close to him. He's always concerned about righteousness and that's the one who suffers probably the most of anyone else we can think of in the pages of Scripture, except for who or whom? Our Savior. All right, now let's just think for a moment about our Savior's condition as he is born into the world. Is our Savior born with a sin nature that he inherited from Adam? No. No sin nature. Christ, when he came into the world, came in just like Adam before the fall. He'd never sinned. How you know we we just really can't understand a person like that. No sin nature. We're our own worst enemy. But Not so with our Savior. He never sinned his whole life. He comes to the cross the moment of his crucifixion when Paul tells us that he who knew no sin was made sin for us. Not just, just not that he took our sin upon him. He was made sin the perfect second person of the Trinity who existed from eternity past in perfect harmony with the Father and with the Spirit. And now he's made sin for us. It comes to the point where he is hanging on the cross and he cries out, with a loud voice. Eli, Eli, Lamas Avachani. That's an Aramaic phrase that means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken him? The Father had forsaken our Savior? How does that work? We have no idea. If you can explain it to me, see me after class. He was made sin for us. He who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of Christ, of God in him. Now we've got divine righteousness because of our Savior. That exchange of our sin for his perfection. And he suffered there in a finite direction, a duration, a finite duration. He suffered separation from the Father and the wrath of the Father on all the sin of all time that anybody would ever commit. He bore that wrath What kind of suffering is that? That's so far beyond our own comprehension, we can't even imagine it. So, when we get some kind of problem, especially health-wise, have you ever found yourself, uh, you know, you've got the flu and you're miserable and you're in bed and you've got a temperature spiking up to 104 and then one minute and then the next minute you're freezing cold shivering. Have you ever been in a case like that and, says, and say, Lord, why? Why is this happening to me? Why not somebody else? What did I do to deserve this? Or, you know, the flu goes away doesn't kill you. It goes away in a little while. Okay? But what about somebody who maybe had an accident and they end up being a quadriplegic? They have to deal with the fact they'll never walk again. Ever. There they are, stuck in that wheelchair. Two years ago, I suffered a fall During a a time when I was out working in the yard, it was a Memorial Day. Took a fall and I fractured my C2 and C3 vertebrae. It should have killed me, and or no, he wouldn't. You can't have and or or uh, made me a quadriplegic. The C2 vertebrae is known in common medical parlance as the hangman's. Fracture. Oh, wonderful. I lay there on a stretcher in the emergency room lobby because there wasn't any space for me in a room. And I lay there from 2 in the afternoon until 10 o'clock at night. And then I got moved to ICU, which I thought was kind of overkill. But anyway, I was in ICU for a while. And uh, I <clears throat> I was tempted to ask that question. Lord, why me? Why should I have this experience? And then I realized, wait a minute. This does not take God by surprise. This is uh, one of the nine lives I've just used up, even though I'm not a cat. And uh, you intend for me? There's some purpose in this. I don't know what it is, but I submit to it. The Canaanites, in contrast to how the Lord wanted his people to trust in him when it came to uh, disease like this, the Canaanites tried lots of illegitimate means for healing, including the black arts, magic, sacrifice to false idols? Because basically, Baal worship was like the original health and wealth gospel. Why did people worship Baal? Well, ba- Baal was supposed to uh, be able to raise people from the dead. He was able to cure people from disease. Baal was able to send prosperity, prosperity in every aspect of life from productivity of your crops to the fertility of your wife to the fertility of your animals, your farm animals Um, and so that's what it was it was a health and wealth gospel and God didn't want his people to have any part of that have you ever watched a program with somebody like Benny Hinn. He's actually, I understand Benny Hinn has actually repudiated his former uh, life as a health and wealth gospel preacher. But time was when, you know, okay, you know, the the Lord's going to heal you. The healing is part of the atonement. Just name it and claim it, and you get instant healing. If you're still sick... It must be because you didn't have the faith to trust God for this blessing of healing. And I just have one word for that. Well, actually, it'd be more than one word. It's, that is, just to say one word, wrong. Yes, it's true. Healing is in the atonement. And someday, not a single one of us who knows the Lord is ever going to have another disease ever again for eternity as we have new resurrection bodies. But right now we might in fact get a very serious disease. Perhaps the purpose also may have been involving Involved in causing his people to have a longing for the time when God would cleanse away all uncleanness once and for all time. And this realization would cause people to ultimately hope that the Messiah would come into the world just as God had predicted right back in Genesis 3.15 right when the Lord promises Eve that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. The seed of the woman, our Savior, our Messiah, will rescue us from sin and death. What a day that's going to be. This is why Jesus performed so many miracles involving cleansing from uncleanness. We'll leave off there. We've run out of time, and that's where we'll pick up next time. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that we would never be among those who ask the wrong question, why are we experiencing what we're experiencing, but rather that we would look to you and trust that in your sovereign grace and your love for us, you have allowed us to be a good testimony for you in what we experience. Help us to glorify Christ in every area of our lives. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.